Our scripture reading today comes from Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 4 through 20. The king said to me, What is it you want? Then I pray to the God of heaven, and I answer the king. If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city in Judah where my ancestors are buried, so that I can rebuild it. Then the king, with the queen sitting beside him, asked me, How long will your journey take, and when will you get back? It pleased the king to send me, so I set a time. I also said to him, If it pleases the king, may I have letters to the governors of Trans-Euphrates, so that they will provide me safe conduct until I arrive in Judah. And may I have a letter to Asaph, keeper of the royal park, so he will give me timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel, by the temple and for the city wall and for the residence I will occupy. And because the gracious hand of my God was on me, the king granted my requests. When Sambalat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official heard about this, they were very much disturbed that someone had come to promote the welfare of the Israelites. I went to Jerusalem and after staying there three days and set out during the night with a few others. I had, to- I had not told anyone what my God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. There were no mounts with me except the one I was riding on. By night, I went out through the valley gate toward the jackal well and the dung gate, examining the walls of Jerusalem, which had been broken down and its gates, which had been destroyed by fire. Then I moved on toward the fountain gate and the king's pool, but there was not enough room for my mount to get through. So I went up the valley by night, examining the wall. Finally, I turned back and re-entered through the valley gate. The officials did not know where I had gone or what was I doing, because as yet I had said nothing to the Jews or the priests or nobles or officials or any others who would be doing the work. Then I said to them, You see the trouble we are in? Jerusalem lies in ruins, and its gates have been burned with fire. Come. Let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem, and we will no longer be in disgrace. I also told them about the gracious hand of my God on me and what the king had said to me. They replied, Let us start rebuilding. So they began this good work. But when Sambalat the Horonite, Tobiah the Ammonite official, and Geshem the Arab heard about it, they mocked and ridiculed us. What is this you are doing? they asked. Are you rebelling against the king? I answered them by saying, The God of heaven will give us success. We, his servants, will start rebuilding. But as for you, you have no share in Jerusalem or any claim or historic right to it. Amen. Amen, and good morning, and welcome again. We're in the middle of a series, as you can see, called Unshakable, looking at how the gospel can help us live unshakable lives in very shakable times, and we're doing that through the lens of a life of a man named Nehemiah. Nehemiah did something extraordinary during his lifetime, and part of the reason we're actually talking about him in particular is because I think that most of us, if not all of us, would also like to do something extraordinary during our lifetimes, no matter how old you are, or young you are, or you're single or married today. And I believe if you're here and you're part of Mosaic Church, or if you're here and you're visiting and thinking about becoming a part of Mosaic Church, I think you're here not just because you don't have something better to do on a Sunday morning, but because you want to be part of something meaningful. 
You want to be a part of something extraordinary in your lifetime. And if that's not you, well, I'll just speak for myself today. I want to be part of something extraordinary in my lifetime. I want to make my moments and my days and, and my years count and matter for something. And I think if you're here that you want that same thing, which is the same thing Nehemiah wanted. That's why we're looking at him. And today we're going to see him take his first steps in his great, big, extraordinary adventure. And let's ask, how did he get there? How did he get pushed out of where he was in his life into living a far better story? Well, actually, chapter 2 shows us it was through a series of questions of all things. And if you noticed during the reading, and I'm sure you're noticing this closely, there were three questions asked of him at crucial moments in his life. And I think those three questions he had to face and answer are crucial for us to face and answer in order to live lives of significance. All right, let's ask the same questions he was asked. Nehemiah was asked, number one, what on earth do you want? Second, what do you really need? Finally, who do you think you are? I want to ask and answer these same questions as well today. Let's ask you, number one, what on earth do you want? What do you want? Now, where are we in the story first? Let's recap quickly. In Nehemiah's lifetime, if you're new here, uh, the city of his people, the city of Jerusalem, lay in ruins. It had been conquered by the Babylonian Empire, torn to the ground almost 100 years before. Then the Persian Empire came in, conquered the Babylonians, and the Persians allowed some of the exiled Jews to begin returning back to the city. But for decades, the rebuilding effort that was going on back in Jerusalem had stalled. The economy was in shambles. The people were being vandalized. Crime and corruption in Jerusalem were running rampant. The worship of God there had decayed. Life in the city was chaotic, fragmented at best. People lived in fear of the future while their leaders abused the system and enriched themselves at the people's expense. Man, don't you wish the Bible were a little more relevant to what people go through today? And in all that mess, Nehemiah wanders. Nehemiah was a Jew who grew up in Babylon, far from his homeland. His parents had been, grandparents had been taken captive and forcibly relocated. But Nehemiah had worked his way up into a comfortable perch in the palace. He worked for the king, King Artaxerxes. And then one day, Nehemiah's own brother came back from visiting the homeland and told him just how bad things were back in Jerusalem. And that was the day Nehemiah's heart broke over what he had heard. And we saw last week that after that moment, after that heartbreak, Nehemiah had been praying for four months about what to do next. And one day here in chapter two, Nehemiah sees and seizes his chance. And this day, this one day, because Nehemiah was the king's own personal life insurance policy, uh, he was the king's cupbearer, a person who was charged with tasting the king's food first to make sure it wasn't poisoned. Nehemiah came in with the king's food, and the king noticed that day that Nehemiah didn't have that pep in his step. And the king asked, what is wrong with you? A question I'm sure a lot of you parents ask your children all the time. Like, what is wrong with you? Maybe it's own, just my life. All right. And Nehemiah replies this. He said, why shouldn't my face look sad? 
where the city where my ancestors are buried lies in ruins. The gates have been destroyed by fire. Verse 4, the king said to me, what is it you want? All right. This isn't just the question. Listen, this is the question. This is perhaps... The single greatest question anybody could ever ask you. This is the question you should be praying people around you ask you. And by the way, for all you husbands out there, free marriage tip, this is the question. Your wife has been praying, you ask her. She's longing for the day when she hears those words come out of your lips. What is it you want, baby? But the words here actually come out of the king's lips. And this is the moment that Nehemiah has been waiting for. He's been praying about for four months. For four months, he's been carrying around this burden in his heart, waiting, hoping someone would ask him that question because that question is the question. And the reason that that question is the question is because that question gets down to the root of whatever is in your heart. That's the question that pushes past the surface down into your heart's cry. And here's why you can know. This is perhaps the greatest single life-defining question you can ever be asked. It's because Jesus Christ asked the same question all the time, all the time, in all four Gospels. You can look it up at differing moments, sometimes to a group, sometimes to disciples, sometimes to an individual. Jesus would turn and ask that same question. He would ask them, what is it that you want? What do you want me to do for you? And here's why this is so interesting, because most of the time, whenever you read those stories, Jesus asked that question of someone with a glaringly obvious need. Repeatedly, he'd ask that question of someone sick or diseased or blind, and you've got to ask why he would ask that. Why would Jesus ask someone who's blind what they want the most. I mean, when you're blind, right? And the word has gotten out on the street that there's someone who can heal you of your blindness and you walk up to that person whom you believe can heal you of your blindness and they ask you, what do you want me to do for you? It seems almost insulting, almost insulting, unkind or cruel. I mean, imagine, imagine if you went to buy, say, for example, some ice cream at an ice cream stand that sold one flavor, the world's greatest flavor, chocolate, by the way. And imagine if you went up to that ice cream stand that sold only one thing in one size and one flavor with money in your hand. And now imagine if the guy in the stand asks you, what is it that you want? What is it you want? I mean, you give him the total side eye. You just say, what is it? What do you mean? What do I want? I want the only thing on that menu of yours, if you can call it a menu. I want the extra large chocolate ice cream, and I want it now, pal. And don't ask me any more insulting questions. And so when Jesus asks a blind man, what is it you want? What do you think he's doing? Oh, He's doing the same thing the king of Persia is doing to Nehemiah. He's seeing what is in that person's heart. He's just wanting to hear it from you. He's wanting to hear it from you. So I'll ask you, what on earth do you want? What's your, hear this, what's your great dream today in life? What do you want God to do for you? You say, that's a big question. Is it okay really to ask God that? No, no. It's more than just okay. Listen, folks, it's critical to ask God that. It's so crucial, so important to bring to God our great dreams, our big dreams, our 
impossible kind of dreams and ask those of him because doesn't he say in his word with God all things are possible doesn't he say that uh, nothing is impossible for those who believe doesn't he say ask and it'll be given to you seek and you'll find knock and the door will be open to who to you right for to who everyone who asks He'll find, seek, and get answered, right? Isn't Jesus the one always asking the question, what is it you want? Now, I'll give you the balance in a moment, but I don't want to rush past this. Because when you see Jesus asking a question, you see God in motion asking the same question. And I don't believe for a moment that Jesus was anything less then purposeful or strategic with his life and his words. And so when he does something over and over and over again, it ought to get your attention. What is it you want him to do for you? All right. Nehemiah has asked that question. Let's see how he responded. What would he say? Well, Nehemiah here, he goes all in. On the first hand dealt, he pushes all his chips to the middle of the table and he says this, then I pray to the God of heaven and I answer the king. If it pleases your king, if your servants found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city in Judah so that I can rebuild it. This is huge. This is stunning. Nehemiah is asking for a massive relocation package. He's asking for the moon. He's asking to be sent to a rival nation to rebuild it with Persian funds, right? I mean, if you think countries have a hard time getting along today, they got nothing on folks back then. This is like some kind of a joke unless, unless the God of heaven is with you. And it's even less of a joke when the God of heaven asks you. And I believe the same question the king asked Nehemiah is, and the same question that Jesus of Nazareth asked all through his ministry of all the people that he loved is the same question he's asking of you today. And the same question, dare I say it? Yes, I will. He's asking this church today. What do you want me to do for you? What do you want? And so, since we're asking the question, let me give you my answer. God, what do I want you to do for us? God, I want to be a part of something that matters. That's my prayer. I don't want to be a part of just another church, although I'm grateful for every church in the city that God loves, right, that he's put here. It's a part of the, the great big C, capital C church. I'm thankful I'm not alone, but I want to be part not just of another church, but another kind of church, as I've said before. A church, you've heard me say it, I'll say it again, because this is my great dream. A church that isn't politically liberal or conservative, but it's gospel centered in the end, a church that expresses the gospel in word and deed, a church that's intentionally on purpose, diverse, a church that loves the grace of God and the holiness of God and the justice of God and the power of God, a church that doesn't say its focus is either the unchurched or the church, but can speak to both, a church that's both passionate and deep, where you don't have to check your emotions or your brain at the door, a church that has the fireplace of church history and the fire of the Holy Spirit in it, a church that isn't current events driven, but it is current. See, not just another church, but another kind of a church, one that makes disciples in a multi-ethnic, multi-generational context. You say, 
Well, that's like asking for the moon. I say that's the point. Because when it's Jesus asking, you don't ask for your hangnail to be healed. You ask for your blindness to be banished, right? And you've got to ask for whatever it is someone's told you is impossible (coughs) for your life. What do you got to lose when it's the king asking? So the first question that moved Nehemiah from the sidelines of the game was that question. What is it you want? But, 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 there's a second question here that brings a balance. He got asked immediately that you need to be asked as well. We need to be asked as well. Here's a second question. Not just what do you want, but what do you really need? What do you really need? And here's what the king says next. And the king with the queen sitting beside him asked me, how long will your journey take? And when will you get back? That's the second question. So Artaxerxes has asked you, Nehemiah here, what do you need or what's it going to take to fulfill your great dream, Nehemiah? What's it going to take to bring to pass what's in your heart? And here's where, of course, we read Nehemiah gets really specific. He basically asks for a Persian Express card with an unlimited right cap and he gets it. He gets the card. And that's amazing, but I want to argue for a moment here that there's something that he actually got first that was more important than the card, more important than the stuff. There was something else he got first that he needed more to see his dream come to pass, and that same thing he needed and got is the same thing we need and must have for our lives and dreams today. After Nehemiah leaves Persia, he makes the 800-mile journey to Jerusalem And when he gets there, he does this really odd thing. He goes out at night. He rides all around the city, looks at burned gates, broken down walls. He's got his little small group with him. And then when he gets to the end of his little, you know, nighttime covert ops mission, he turns to his small group. They're riding around with no clue. And they're in the dark, no clue what Nehemiah is up to. And when they get to the end of his little tour... Nehemiah finally shares his vision to rebuild the city, and he concludes his speech like this. Verse 18, he says, Then I told them how the hand of my God had been favorable to me, and also about the king's words, which he had spoken to me. And friend, I want to submit to you today that this is what you need in your life for your dream, for your home, for your future, for your marriage, for your kids. If you're married, if you got kids, you need above all, hear this, you need the king's words spoken to you. How do I know? Oh, because look at what the men say and do immediately. When Nehemiah says this, then they said, let us arise and build. Uh Uh-oh, okay, I can hear you. You actually want me to preach about that more because you didn't say amen. So you didn't catch the significance. I'm gonna preach this real good until you get it. See, Nehemiah was with a group of people who had quit. They had quit. These were people living in Jerusalem. They had given up on their great dream. 
to rebuild their nation, the dream of their city or their people ever being something ever again, been almost a hundred years since the city was destroyed, more than 20 since anyone had even made an effort. Nehemiah was talking to a group of people who were utterly defeated in their souls, and yet, in just a few words, he convinces these same people with no self-image, no confidence, no faith to attempt a greater thing than a 25-point comeback in a Super Bowl, right? (laughs) How did he do it? Here's how. Because Nehemiah carried around inside of him what you and I must carry around inside us. It's the king's words. And if you're a Christian here today, you can have not just the words of an earthly king. There's a greater king, a heavenly king that you have and you serve. He's in charge, not just of a passing kingdom like Persia, but a kingdom that will endure and live forever. That's growing all around the world today. You have that king and you need that king's words. Spoken on the inside of you, then out of your mouth. To the people all around you, oh, listen, you got to get this. Nehemiah, he had no authority on his own. His words were the words of an unknown person. He rides into a town full of defeated people who were defeated until he shared the words of the king. Oh, the king's words were what made this people great. And this is what will make the people around you great. The king's words within you, the king's words spoken to you. Listen, I have determined, I determined to get my best words from the king. My best words, my best thoughts from God for you. Listen, it's the king's words that bring you life, that bring a sense of confidence within you to arise and build your great dream in your life. Listen, all the stuff Nehemiah had was worthless without the king's words. And some of you today, you're trying to build something, trying to, to build a life or a home or a career or a marriage or a family, and you've got the stuff. You've got the looks or the talent or the financial capital or backing or ability or whatever it is you think that the world says that you need. You've got the stuff. Oh, but you're wondering, why haven't I ever broken through? Why do I keep circling the same mountain over and over again? It's because you've only got the king's stuff. You don't have the king's words burning in your heart and you're not going to get that, hear me, from a television show, nice as TV is, not to get that just from a podcast somewhere. You got to get it on your own, the king's words spoken into you in your heart of hearts. It's the king's words that'll bring you life. The king's words that'll set you free. This past week, it's meditating. The book of Genesis, doing my Bible reading. So it doesn't have much to do with Nehemiah. Well, that's the point. It's reading chapter one, Genesis over and over again. The king's words began to come to me. And God saw that it was good. And God saw that it was good. And God saw that it was good. What's good, God? What's good, Father? He said, the work I'm doing in my church. So I noticed you said your church, not my church, God. Okay, I noticed it's your church, right? Yeah. He said, tell the people the work I'm doing is a good work. It's a good work. And it, church, it is a good work that God is doing among us and in us and through us. The dream we have together in this place is a good dream. And here's how I know it's a good dream and a good work because we're dreaming about and working toward growing into the kind of place 
that the world says can't exist. And here's why. Because when you come into a place like this, you got all kinds of people gathered here today. And aren't you all beautiful? You're so pretty. And ladies, of course. And that's, listen, that's difficult enough. Hard enough. Just to get people from all over the world, different backgrounds in a room together. And if you're new here and you're thinking, this is pretty great. Listen, it is. But that's not just our dream. Let's drop down a level. What is? Oh, well, as challenging as it is to get people from different backgrounds in a room together, we actually, for the most part, in general, go a step further and have people here relating in homes, in smaller communities across our church. Our diversity is, again, for the most part, more than skin deep. And that's extraordinary because in many places, the diversity stops at the parking lot. It just does. So even gathering people in smaller groups while still challenging is not the greatest challenge many people here face. Well, what is it? Well, let's drop down one more level. Hardest challenge many people experience in a diverse community, and here's really where our dream is. The reason that people quit and give up on it is the challenge they experience when something they disagree about happens in the outside world. See, most people at that point either turn or burn. They turn away or they burn their relationships they disagree with. But we're trying to do what hardly anybody ever does anywhere. Trying to see people, and we are seeing people hold together in arguably the most contentious point in recent American history in our lifetimes, a time when everything conspires to pull us apart. And I think you are so brave and we are so brave and I'm so proud of us for doing this and going there and having hard and brave and fierce conversations. We're proving that Jesus Christ is Lord of our lives and here's why. Because he said all people, the world will know that you are my disciples when you hang out in groups of people just like you. Oh wait, you've heard that verse before, right? For then you will never disagree and your life will be really easy. No, he said, all people will know you're my disciples when you love one another. And love can only be demonstrated when there's an opportunity to walk away and not love. And therefore, I would argue that the kind of work we're doing here, our great dream of reconciling people from different backgrounds, not just on the surface, not just in small groups, but deep down at the bottom in order to make disciples in our city is the kind of work our nation needs to be doing to rebuild things broken in the past. And for us to be Nehemiah's in our culture. We don't just need the stuff or the lights or the sound or the stage. We need the king's words spoken in our hearts. So I'll say to you, I believe the king's spoken to me for whatever it's worth to you. You may be saying, well, that's not much. I'll remind you, after all, it is free. All right. (laughs) And God saw that it was good. And God saw that it was good. And I'd hope you say in response to that, if you haven't before, it's time to arise and build. Time to arise and build. First today, what do you want? Tell God, bring him your great dream. Number two, what do you need? What do you really need? You really need his words spoken to you so you know you're following him and not just your own, own plan. And finally this morning, last question, the one that pulls it all together. Number three. Who do you think you are? Uh, who do you think you are? After the people get fired up to make the dream a reality, it says this, look, so they began this what? Good 
work. They began a good work. But when Sanballat, Tobiah, Geshem heard about it, they mocked and ridiculed us. What is this you're doing? They asked, are you rebelling against the king? In other words, they're asking, who do you think you are to be dreaming like this and doing this? And we'll find out more about his critics next week. But here's the point. When he gets going, the first thing they question is his very identity. Are you a rebel? Are you this kind of person, that kind of person? Who do you think you are to be living out your God-sized dream this way, Nehemiah? What I want you to see here is Nehemiah's extraordinary response. He said, I answered them by saying, the God of heaven will give us success. We, his servants, will start rebuilding. And friends, this is why, here's why Nehemiah's response is so extraordinary. Because it shows us the kind of identity we need to live out God's great dream. And he's put in our hearts. Nehemiah's response here, look, is a stunning blend of confidence and humility. Oh, here, he's so bold. I mean, there's no hand-wringing. There's no, oh, woe is me. There's no, I can't believe somebody doesn't like me. I'm going to quit. No, he doesn't do that. It's like he's bulletproof, rejection-proof. He boldly stands up for them and says, we are going to succeed. He draws a line in the sand here and basically says, we're going to win. You're going to lose. That's some guts. That's pretty bold, right? But look, look, look at what his boldness is rooted in. It's in who God is, not in who he is. Because he doesn't say also, he doesn't say, I'm going to win because all I do is win, right? He doesn't say that. He says, we will succeed because what? Because the God of where? Heaven. The God of heaven will give us success. He knows what he's undertaking is going to take a greater sense, a deeper sense of a God-sized identity than he's ever had before. And let me tell you, whenever you start to try to do something great, whenever you're pursuing today the great dream God's put in your heart, what he's made you to do, you better believe people are going to question you and ask, who are you? To do this. I mean, it's almost the unbelievably sad default mode of the human heart towards a person's dream. It asked, You want to do what? Who are you to do that? Who do you think you are? You've got a dream to build a great business? Who do you think you are? You've got a dream to stay married when no one in your family has ever stayed married. Who do you think you are? You've got a dream to break that addiction cycle. Who do you think you are? You've got a dream of a church that does what? Who do you think that you are? But Nehemiah, he doesn't blow up on one hand or back down on the other. Who did he think he was? He tells you. He says, we his what? servants. He calls himself a servant, and it's not just any kind of a servant. This is the Hebrew word for a bond servant, someone who is bound to a master by a debt that's owed. Nehemiah can say this to his critics because he saw himself as God's bond servant. And while Nehemiah had, what he had was great. I'm telling you today, that you can have something even greater. You can have a deeper sense of confidence and a deeper sense of humility even than Nehemiah had. And here's how you can have it. 
You don't just look at Nehemiah, although he's great. You have to see who Nehemiah points to right here, like this. Because almost 400 years after Nehemiah, another man, another hero with a broken heart, he also came riding into Jerusalem on a donkey with his followers. And he rode through the very walls and gates that Nehemiah helped to rebuild. But when Jesus Christ came with the king of heaven's words for his people, the religious leaders of his day, they didn't say, let us arise and build. They said, let us arise and kill. And Jesus of Nazareth was taken and crucified outside the walls of that city, put to death, though he had done no wrong. But God raised him from the dead, and a few years after that happened, another man by the name of Paul, the apostle, in a letter he wrote to a brand new church in the city of Philippi, he said this about Jesus and Jesus' life. Paul wrote about Jesus. He said, although he existed in the form of God, he did not require equality with God, a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking the form of what? What's the word? A bond servant and being made in the likeness of men being found in appearance as a man he humbled himself and becoming obedient to the point of death even death on a cross and Paul looked at all of this and he said to the church he said now have this same attitude it's the word for identity how you think about yourself have this attitude in yourselves which was also in Christ Jesus a bond servant. Who do you think you are, Jesus? Who do you think you are to claim to be God? Who do you think you are to claim to be the redeemer of humankind? Why would you allow yourself to be tortured and executed? How can you be so bold and so humble at the same time? Who do you think you are? Paul said, he's a bond servant, a bond servant. What does that do for us? Oh, it does this. When you know that Jesus had to die for you, it humbles you, humbles you. You were the reason he went to the cross. But when you know he was glad to die for you, oh, he loved you so much, it fills you with an unstoppable courage because the God of heaven has done this for me. See, you get this kind of identity from looking at the gospel over and over again and you let it change you and you let it critique you and you let it humble you, you let it pull you up from wherever you are today and then you can turn and say to the critics of your soul all the enemies of fear and pride and rejection and brokenness and all that, you can say, I am a servant of the God God of heaven, and he will give his servant success. Servant success. This week, ask yourself these questions first. What do I want? What do I want? Tell God your great dream. Then ask second, oh God of heaven, king of heaven, will you speak to me? I want your words inside me. And finally, ask him, God, will you show me who I am to you. Who I am to you. Who do you say that I am? Oh, those words, they'll change you. Let's go to him now in prayer, trusting him for a bit of that.